Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 say this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. King Edward VIII of England didn't reign very long because he abdicated in the last century because he wanted to marry a divorced American woman. And so he chose her over the kingship. But he uh, is quoted as saying, apparently in Look magazine on March 5th, 1957, a comment about the United States. He said, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. Now, that was in 1957. If King Edward were around today, I wonder what he would say about American parenting and the roles of parents and children. The, the humorous comment obviously points to an important question, and that is the question of roles. What's the role of the children? What's the role of the parents? And he was, in a backhanded way, saying we've got it backwards in the United States. Now, however that might be, what we're going to look at today is the biblical role the biblical role for children, the biblical role for parents. And this is very little instruction, as we've seen that to the wives and the husbands, it was very short instruction. Other places, it's longer. Here, it's very short. One verse addressed to children, one verse addressed to parents. Now, let me review where we are up to this point, because if you're, you've not been here for this series, it, this may not fit. You might wonder why this instruction. Well, the first two chapters of Colossians bleeding into chapter 3 are all about what God has done for us in Jesus, that he is God himself, God in the flesh, and that he has given himself for us to save us by his grace, by faith in him. And then we have a pivot in chapter 3. In chapter 3, 1, it says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So here, the rest of this, this letter is about the life above, the heavenly life. And it's described here. And then it's described in general, and it's described more specifically. And the first thing, if you've died with Christ, then put to death the misdeeds of the body. Uh, and verse 8, uh, put off the misdeeds of the body. And then in verse 12, put on then uh, as God's cho chosen ones, the, the clothing of the new life. And then he gets very, very specific about wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters. But this is the life above. And we noted last week that the life above is not some ethereal, disconnected life. It's a life that's connected to the mundane relationships. We live out the life above in the way we treat each other as husbands and wives, as children, as parents, as, as masters and slaves in this case, or as we'll see the application for that next week in our labor, in our work lives. So the first verse is directed to children. Verse 20, it says simply, nothing really surprising here. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, this text addresses children, but which children? 
it's uh, presupposed here that these children are still at home. So it's not addressing adult children. It's addressing minor children. It's addressing children that are still at home, still dependent on their parents. And I want you to notice something here that's significant, but something that we may pass over, and that's this. Children are addressed here as part of the church of Jesus Christ. They're addressed here as part, not as at arm's length, not as distant, not as someday maybe being a part of the church of Jesus Christ, but as a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And they are addressed as moral agents who are subject to the word of God and can respond to the word of God, whatever age they might be. Now, the children are to obey their parents, it says, in everything. What this emphasizes off the bat is that the relationship between parents and children is a relationship of authority, of authority. Now, that may be obvious, and and, and none of this is probably surprising up to this point, and yet parents really, really want to be friends with our children. But sometimes we want to jump right to that friendship stage and jump over the stage of authority. And I can tell you, as one who has adult children, you can be friends with your children, but not yet. Not yet if they are little, because you are still in an authority relationship with them. As I say, first we are their teachers, then we are their friends, and then they become, this is where we are, then they become our teachers. And we're learning a great deal from our children now. But it's an authority relationship. And it uses the word here, as in Greek, so in English, we have two words. We have a word for mother, father, but there's also a generic word for parents. And it says, obey your parents, that is, mother and father. So no distinction here. So children are to obey their mother and their father equally. And children, as you know, know how to figure out where those fissures are uh, between mother and father if they can figure out where a crack is, where they can get away with something with mother, but not with father or vice versa. But this is, this is even here. Obey both your parents equally. And children are to obey their parents in everything, it says here, in everything. Now, what's the, what's the presupposition here? The presupposition is that, that this is directed to Christian families. So this is directed uh, not to non-Christians. It's not directed to a divided family. It's directed to Christian families. And so that which the parents tell their children, that which they command their children, will not be in, uh, in or out of accord with the word of God. And that's why Paul and Timothy can say, obey your parents, your Christian parents, who are parenting in a way that is in accord with God's word. Obey them in everything. Now, the reason stated here, there's a reason. It's not just because I said so, but there's a reason. For this pleases the Lord. Literally, this is pleasing in the Lord. In the Lord. This is an expression throughout here. In Christ, in the Lord. In relationship with the Lord. And this is a good translation. Pleases the Lord. Now, once again, what's behind this? There's a, there's a presupposition here. If you say to children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord, that assumes that the children want to do what? Please the Lord. That that these children who are part of the church who are being addressed want at some level to please the Lord. And so that's a motivator. So if you say to the, the young boy or the girl, 
if you do this, this pleases the Lord, that will be appealing to them. Now, why that presupposition here? It's not because of some sentimental view of children that somehow they are natively oriented towards the Lord. Rather, it's focusing on the fact that in a Christian home, that these children will have experienced God's grace from their earliest days and that it will be a normal thing for them want to want to please the Lord. Now, that's for children. And like I say, nothing very, very surprising there. Um, but this comes all the way back you know, from the, the, the commandment, honor your father and mother. And here the expression of that honoring your father and mother when you're in their home is to obey them and everything. This is pleasing to the Lord. Then they turn to fathers. Did you notice the switch there? Children obey your what? Parents, generic. And then verse 21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is the exact same thing that happens in Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And as I mentioned last week, in Ephesians, the instruction is much more extensive. And so I, I, I urge you to, to look at Ephesians. But it's the same switch from obey your parents and then fathers, focusing on the fathers. Now, why the fathers? This could simply be because both in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, the father was the recognized authority in the household and the authority over the children. But at the same time, there's a useful reminder and an important reminder for those of us who are fathers that the education and the discipline of our children is our responsibility. One of the, one of men's worst tendencies, and I can say this as a man, one of men's worst tendencies is to delegate this responsibility to others, either exclusively to the mother or to teachers or to Sunday school teachers or whomever, whoever it might be. When I was young, there was this strange phenomenon, strange phenomenon. It, it didn't happen in my family, but, but we weren't church-going. But among those who were sort of semi-church-going at least, there was this phenomenon of parents taking their children and dropping them off at Sunday school and then picking them up, dropping their kids off at Sunday school so their kids could get a little bit of religion. The parents thought that would be good for them. But what was the message that that sent? That's, the message that sent was, this is not for us. We don't really believe this. This doesn't affect our lives. This is just something that we think uh, will be good for you. And the children get the lesson very well, don't they? Uh, the fathers there and mothers in that case too, abdicating their responsibility. I had a one terrible, terrible semester, probably one of the hardest times of my life, where I was a pastor of a church uh, in Mexico. I was the country director for our mission in Mexico, and I also was the interim director for our little Christian school. And so I had three jobs that had been full-time before I took them on. And probably the hardest one of those was being an administrator of a Christian school. My respects to administrators in Christian schools. But I, I rewrote the policies, and I, wrote, I rewrote the discipline policy particularly. And what I said was this to the parents. We are not going to discipline anybody at this school. The dads are going to discipline their children. And so I told all, the, all of the teachers, if you have a problem with any of the kids, send them directly to me. I will call the father, not the mother, I will call the father, 
and we will work it out. And that's what I do. The kid would come in, and I think they would have been much happier if I had done the disciplining or the teacher. And so I'd, I had the numbers of all the fathers. It wasn't a big school, so I could call them. One was in France in a meeting. Another was in Spain at a meeting. And, and the children were there sort of trembling. And one said, oh, I'm dead meat. Uh, you're you're going to call my dad. He's, he's, he's traveling in, in Spain. But I would say, uh, Dad, uh, here I have little Johnny or Sally or whoever it was. And uh, he or she has done this or that. I'm going to put it on speakerphone. And you're going to work this out. And I would say, go. And they would work it out. Now, let me, just, let me just tell you, I don't think they continue that, but let me just tell you that semester, who were the happiest people? Who were the happiest people? The mothers. The mothers were the happiest people. I don't know if this was the way to run a school or not. I did it for one semester, and then I was out of there. But the mothers were the happiest. Why? Because the fathers were having to step up as the ones who are responsible for the education and discipline of their children. Now, this instruction to fathers is completely negative. It's what not to do in verse 21. It doesn't tell us what to do. I direct you to Ephesians 6, 4, where it says for fathers to bring their children up in the education, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord, but in order not to go far afield and to take what the Colossians would have had before them, what is there at least implicit here, positively speaking, about fathers' jobs? Well, if children are to obey their parents and the fathers are responsible for the education and discipline of their children, then those facts, from those facts, we can conclude that fathers are to teach their children to obey both their mother and their father. And when we talk about obedience, obedience should be prompt and obedience should be complete. So delayed obedience is disobedience. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. So fathers are to see to it that their children obey both their mother and themselves. And as an incentive, the sooner you teach your children prompt and complete obedience, the happier you will be and the happier they will be. You see, when, when the situation that Edward VIII described happens, neither the parents nor the children are happy because they're in the wrong role. When parents obey their children, neither is happy. I can tell you about two meals, two lunches that I was a part of. One was in the house of a young pastor with several small kids. And the other was in our house where we invited a family with some small kids. When we were at the young pastor's house, and I mention these because these happened years or decades ago in a couple different countries. You'll never be able to identify who these people are. But the young pastor's kids were, were pretty much out of control. They were, or rather I should say, they were in control of the meal. They were out of control, but they were controlling the whole atmosphere by their whining, by their complaining, by their running about, by their demanding, by their refusing to listen to their parents. And what I saw was some unhappy children. 
And I don't know whether I was right. I, I talked as an older pastor, talked to the young pastor about that. It's always hard when somebody talks to us about our children, isn't it? But I, I appealed to them and I said, your children are unhappy when they are in control like that. The other meal I was at, we had this young couple over, a couple little kids, and they, we were eating around our table, and all of a sudden, something had gone wrong. I hadn't, I hadn't even picked it up, because I thought the kids were, were behaving quite well. But the, the daughter, who was the older, older she, uh, she had done something wrong. I think she was playing with her mashed potatoes, so it wasn't some sort of a major offense. And if you'd ask me, mashed potatoes are a great thing to play with. So I, I wouldn't put that up there as a, as a big deal. But, but here's the big deal. It must have been that at some point the father had said, sweetie, don't play with your mashed potatoes. And so once he had issued that, now it became a question of obedience to what he had said. And so at some point, I, when I, I was not even perceiving this, uh, she was playing, I suppose, with those mashed potatoes and having a grand time. And her, her father, all he did was he got up, he picked her up, he took her to another room, he closed the door. All of a sudden, the child let, let out a yelp and began to cry as if she had just experienced some sharp pain. And then after another minute or so, they came back to the table. The child was happy and the rest of the meal was a delight. And I saw the difference between how unhappy the children were when they were in control and how happy, even though there was a sharp, painful moment there of discipline, how happy the children were when they were under their parents' control. But now, that's the part that's actually only implicit here. The part that's actually explicit here is the negative, what not to do. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children. So even as we teach them prompt and complete obedience, we need to avoid provoking them. Now, there are a number of unusual or uncommon words that show up in the letter to the Colossians, which is why some people think that Timothy had a greater hand in writing it than other, uh, other letters that bear Timothy's name as well. This verb appears only one other time in the New Testament, and in the other time, it's positive. Provoke, that is to stir up or to stir on. Here, it has to be negative, and it must mean to irritate, to antagonize, or to embitter. So dads, fathers, don't antagonize, don't irritate, don't, don't embitter your children. Apparently, apparently, dads are good at this. It's singled out here as the one thing not to do. And the reason, the reason to avoid provoking them in this sense is so that they don't become disheartened, discouraged, lacking passion, crushed in spirit. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. They lose their courage. And as I said, apparently dads have a tendency to crush our children, to crush their spirits. So in our disciplining them, in our teaching them, in our making sure they obey, we need to be careful. I, since I've gotten back to the States, I know it's been five years now, but, but I'm, I'm sensitive to 
to expressions that I never heard people using before, and these, these trendy expressions. And one expression I've heard is daddy issues, daddy issues. And I, I keep hearing, oh, she's got daddy issues. He's got daddy issues. I've got daddy issues. So I wonder what these, these daddy issues are. And I guess they're mommy issues, but I don't hear about mommy issues as much as I do daddy issues. And so I, I did a little search this past week, daddy issues. And what came up first was a song. I guess there's a song called Daddy Issues. I didn't listen to it, but I, I read the lyrics, and I, I didn't get it. I didn't think it was great, uh, great poetry, or I don't know if it's great music or not. But then I thought, well, there are a bunch of comments here. I'm going to read the comments, because I'm not getting this song, but maybe somebody else is. Let me read you some of the comments. This song slaps harder than my dad. This song hits different when you have a workaholic dad who doesn't show affection and a depressed mother. When your dad is there financially, just not emotionally. You know what hurts? I loved you. She's writing to her dad. I loved you. And sometimes I feel like I still do. But you broke me. You gave me trauma and pain more than anyone can give. You were there for me. You loved me. But why? Why did it have to hurt? You made me hate myself. You made me feel like I was never good enough. Whenever I'd let my guard down with you, you you always found a way to hurt me. How? How did it go from a sweet father and daughter relationship to me crying every night, even when you're here? Maybe that's the problem. You stayed. I'm sorry, Dad. Anyone have trauma with your dad, but you act like nothing's ever happened? And you don't know why, and you literally have panic attacks, etc., alone at night, but you can still somehow keep yourself composed in front of them, even though you completely break down when you talk about it. He was present, just not emotionally. Watching him leave the house with a trash bag when I was seven ruined me. Guess who just told their dad something that happened to them? And he just told me, that I was being selfish and only thinking of myself. I'm mentally tired at this point. What do I have to do to make you proud of me for once? What have I done to deserve what happened? I haven't done anything but act the way you did to me, and it hurts knowing I'm something I wish I wasn't. So do me a favor and take it back. I wish my childhood memories with my dad were happy, just a single happy memory. I have given up hope on my father, I used to care, but he pushes away constantly. Does it count as daddy issues when your father argues with your mother pretty often and calls you a disappointment and yells for no reason? Does it count as daddy issues when he's physically there for you but not emotionally? He buys me things I need, and he's always busy, but he's never there for me to ask what's wrong with my health and instead ask about my grades. I don't have daddy issues. In fact, I don't have a dad. Wait, does that still count as daddy issues? I love my daddy, and he loves me. I just wish we could spend more time together. This song hurts when your dad is dead. Different kind of daddy issues. Y'all, literally help me out here. I'm not sure if this counts, but I'm always so awkward around my dad and saying I love you or hugging him just doesn't feel right. Is that like daddy issues? Or is it just me? 
My dad has been mentally and emotionally abusive to me since I was seven, also extremely neglectful. He used to lock me and my brothers out of the house. He wouldn't feed us. He would never try to fix anything. And he always has to remind me of how hideous he thinks I am. I hate him, but I can't bring myself to really despise him because I remember when he was a good dad. I actually have daddy issues. I used to look up to my dad until I found he was hitting my mom. Does it count as a daddy issue that my father says that I have to make his dream come true and become an amazing and famous doctor, even though he knows I hate being a doctor? He says I have to become a doctor or I have to win a gold medal in Taekwondo. Otherwise, I'm a disappointment. Does it count when you see your father every other weekend instead of every day? This is what daddy issues feels like for me, being jealous that other people have good relationships with their dad, having all the pressure put on you when your dad's here, getting the wrong idea of love from your father, knowing that your mom dealt with your father. And the worst part is that you have a mom that says, What do you want me to do about it? He's your father. You have to obey him in everything. And you also are scared for your life when you're alone with your dad. You're mentally and physically depressed. You have anger issues which travel over from your dad to you. Sorry for venting. I failed a class and nearly a few others because I was too terrified to ask my teacher for help because they were all males. It's just the fact that I have a dad that is pretty much rich and doesn't get me anything or buy me anything for me to survive. He doesn't pay child support or even stop by to say hi. I feel like he forgot that he had a daughter. It just breaks me because he made so many promises and he broke each and every one of them. Daddy issues. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become disheartened. This is just a sampling of a lot of disheartened kids, mostly girls, mostly daughters. There are many ways to provoke our children being harsh, arbitrary, angry, explosive, abusive, indulgent, absent, demeaning, critical, discouraging, cold, selfish, distant, superficial, or uninterested, lots of ways to dishearten them. And if we're going to avoid provoking them, we dads need to learn some skills that probably don't come naturally to many of us. Maybe we didn't learn them in our homes. Maybe we've not seen these in other dads, but we need to learn some some combinations that don't come naturally. Oftentimes we get one of the aspects, but not the other. They're hard to keep together, such as firmness mixed with tenderness or providing financially while being available to our kids, correcting them and also encouraging them, guiding them and also giving them increasing freedom, disciplining them and enjoying them learning with them, and laughing together. I took an informal poll of some adult children. I just wrote them and I said, I'm preaching on this text. Can you help me out? Because this text doesn't say much about positive. It says what not to do. Don't provoke your children so that they become discouraged. But but what should dads do? Can you give me some advice? And these are some adult children, Christian children. 
and my informal, unscientific poll garnered six results. Here they are. One, play with your kids. Two, don't take out personal problems or work frustrations on your kids. Three, discipline with love and consistency. Four, have a good marriage. Five, give progressive independence and trust. And six, read fun books with your kids. Not an exhaustive list, not scientific, but sounds like pretty good advice. This sermon may have been unsettling for some or all of us, because some of us are fathers, some of us are parents, and all of us are children. And when we hear about what children should be and what parents should be and what fathers should be, it's sometimes hard to hear. Whenever there are any problems in the lives of my daughters, I know how quick I am to, to look back to my mistakes and wonder what it was that I did wrong. And I certainly look back on how I was a son in my parents' home and have a lot of regrets about that. The fact of the matter is this, that no matter how hard we try, we're going to fail as children in our role and we're going to fail as parents and fathers in our role as well. And I don't say that so that you give up trying. I say that to point you to the fact that children and parents need the same thing. We need a dose, a large dose, a divine dose of God's grace. And how does God's grace come to us? It comes like this. There is one perfect father, only one. And there's one perfect son. And that one perfect father sent that one perfect son to give his one perfect life for the many lives of the imperfect parents and children. And then the most amazing thing is this. For all of those imperfect parents and children who put their faith in this one perfect son, the one perfect father accepts all as his beloved children. The Apostle John said this, Behold, what manner of love the father has given unto us that we, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So as children of God, as imperfect parents and as imperfect children, there's forgiveness for us. There's a new opportunity for us. There's a loving father who sends a son to cover our sins and to give us yet another chance as he calls us to be children and to be parents. Did you notice something? That many of the comments in response to that song, Daddy Issues, and the comments that I got from my informal poll, they, they boiled down to this. Dad, love me. Dad, accept me. Dad, build a relationship with me. And the astounding news is that God the Father does exactly that through the work of God the Son. He loves us. He accepts us. 
and he builds a relationship with us. Let's pray. Our God, these verses contain very little that would surprise us. And it's easy for us to read over them and say, yeah, that's that's how it should be. And then we look at ourselves as children. We look at ourselves if we're parents. And we realize that's not how it's been. But we thank you that this command still stands for children and for parents. And it's for those who have been raised with Christ and seated at your right hand. And we take heart because we can live the life above and we can live it out in our mundane relationships as we interact as parents and as children. I pray for our children that they would be obedient children. I pray for our parents that we would be loving parents who teach our children obedience as we lead them towards independence. And Father, I pray that you would keep us fathers in particular from provoking our children. We don't want them to become disheartened. Lord, as we look to our many failings and lament them, we also look to you as the loving Heavenly Father who gave the one perfect Son for people like us. And so we take heart and we don't become discouraged. So we pray, O God, that in our relationships, that your grace would flow from parents to children, from children to parents, and that your grace would be evident in the way you transform us as children and transform and mold us as parents. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.